Movies entertain. Entertainment leads to emotions. Those emotions connect us to our enjoyment of film. And that is why we exist. To focus more on the emotional connection than the technical merit. Because every movie makes us feel something. Welcome listeners to another fantastic episode here at Feelin' Film. I'm Patch, and with me, ready to pay dead men his money, is my best friend and co-host Aaron. Hey, I love how you call it a fantastic episode before we've even recorded it. <laughs> well, I'm optimistic. What can I say? <laughs> you, like Mike McDermott, are extremely confident, my friend. <laughs> we share that, at least. Not much else, but we do share that. This week, we are excited to talk about the Matt Damon-led gambling crime drama Rounders, co-starring Edward Norton, John Malkovich, and John Turturro, who round out the cast. It turned 20 years old as of 2018, and we wondered if it still held up after two decades. So what better time than now to do just that? As always, this is your official spoiler alert, so give yourself some time to enjoy the movie and come back and be part of our conversation. But before we get into that conversation, I wanted to announce very quickly that the April donor pick has been voted on. And with the narrowest of margins, Minority Report edged out the matrix for our April donor pick. We're excited to talk about that. Look forward to it later this month. And like Rounders, it's also on Netflix. And next week, on April 14th, we will be giving away three digital copies of the movie we're covering in our next episode, The Rhythm Section. So be sure to come and join at facebook.com slash groups slash film for some great quarantine movie conversation and a chance to win a new film as well. All right. Logistics out of the way. One word takeaway time. Aaron, get us started. All right. Well, the word that kept coming back to my mind the most, and I had several, mostly poker related because I wanted to be punny, but I decided to go with another way. And that one, the word was desperation because I feel like every character in this film not every character, but so many characters in this film are just living in a place of desperation. Worm is trying to get free of this massive debt that he has incurred and is desperate to do so. Mike also trying to get free of this debt that Worm has incurred eventually at some point as well. We have Kanish, who is playing poker just to put food on the table. But for him, he plays poker in a desperate way, as he tells Mike, because it's important to keep his livelihood afloat. Not a special one, just a basic, everyday life. And then Mike, of course, is desperate to prove himself, uh, prove that he is as good as he thinks he is and that he can be successful playing the game that he loves for a living and at the highest level. Even Joe feels desperate at one point or another because she is trying to make a decision on whether or not to follow through with this guy and how her whole life is going to play out relies on whether or not she's able to put up with Mike's poker habit, passion. I don't know what we should call it yet. I guess we'll go through that once we get into the episode. But everyone has this air around them that I feel like a desperation just drives their decision-making. And, you know, over the course of the movie, you know, there's lots of decision-making that will take place where their lives are going to change dramatically. Um, and, I, and I love it. I love that the movie is a, a love letter to the game in many ways, while also at the same time sort of being a cautionary tale against some of the ways the game is typically played. I think that it's really intentionally made that way to force the audience to see the beauty and the danger. It's not always just that sleazy back alley or glitzy rigged casino game. Um, there is something to be seen in it, but it's not necessarily what we all think of at the surface level. So I really love this, Patrick. When I was a kid, I used to watch this movie frequently. I remember definitely watching it more than once in a row on occasion. Um, and I've had, you know, my, my share, fair share of poker games, etc., where I wanted to be Teddy KGB and just quote them all day long, but rewatching it now for the podcast, it was one of those experiences for me where it really elevated it. And this happens sometimes where we get a chance to kind of 
dig in and I guess watch movies with a different state of mind is really what, what we're doing. And we're seeing the depth of what's going on with the characters in a way that goes beyond just the fun quotable lines. And so I it just I loved it. I absolutely freaking loved it this time around. There's definitely an appreciation that you get when you watch something with something like feeling film in mind or any podcast for that matter, whether you're popcorn theology or, you know, any kind of purposeful watch. And I felt that same way walking into this. I, like you, grew up watching Rounders. I thought it was a fantastic and still is a fantastic poker movie. I put it up there with Swingers. It's one of those, those two are the movies that are a lot of fun to watch. And yet watching them as an adult versus a teenager or even a college student, you have a different kind of perspective. And it may be that we're informed by where we are in our lives, that we are adults and we're taking care of kids. Um, it may be that we have income, whereas we didn't. Maybe that we're not living with our parents. I don't know. But it's really, really interesting to be able to look at how we kind of take away our feelings from a movie at different seasons. I wonder how I feel in 20 years if my son becomes the next poker champion or something like that. If I'm going to see this as like, oh, they got none of that right. <laughs> I don't know. My son is not going to be a poker champion. I don't think so, at least. But I digress. Getting into my one word takeaway, uh, Aaron was going to give me some crap because I, I had two listed and he's like, no, 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 no. Once you hyphenate a word, now you're going down the rabbit hole. You cannot start cheating and putting two word takeaways. This is one word takeaway time. I informed him that there was a slash between them, and so I had to pick one. And it was between the words shady and sleazy. So you're essentially giving them both now. And I knew you no, were going to do this. No, no, no. I'm giving them away as for context. I am, I am omitting sleazy. Uh, you can't say it and then say you're omitting it. <laughs> It's like it's, my, it's our show. We can do what we want. It's like putting down a card and then picking it up and be like, "Oh, never mind. I want to play a different one." But I'm not going to play Sleazy ever again. Uh, mm. I'm just dis- I'm discarding it. You're discarding. <laughs> Wrong game. It's All not. Right. I'm not. It's not one of my community cards. I'm not going to use that one. <laughs> <laughs> when I when I look at the circumstances surrounding a lot of these main characters, I can't help but think that their circumstances dictate a sense of a shady life. There's a grit to it. There's a sense of kind of an undergroundness because it seems like everywhere you go in this movie, there's no poker game happening in any main hallway of a hotel or any kind of club. No, these are behind closed doors, three floors down. You have to... Make sure that you're looking at the camera to say, hey, yeah, it's me. Everything about the movie, the attitude behind it feels very shady. Even with Mike and Joe and the way their relationship is, like it feels a little bit like he's not being completely honest with her, being able to live his life fully, even though he's made promises. Worm, obviously, is the epitome of shadiness because of the way he plays cards. Teddy KGB and the Russian mob. You can't get much shadier than that. Every person that we get to interact with on Mike and Worm's journey seem to really bring out the sense of a life that isn't very honest. Even though there's a sense of honor in the game that's talked about throughout the film, I feel like that's kind of the wool that comes over our eyes as we're watching this because we're talking about a life and a motive and a way of living that isn't really legit, you know, where, yes, it's legal to play poker, but why are you not going to Atlantic City on the weekends? Why are you not cooking the books uh, with your winnings? Why are you keeping cash in a picture frame? You know, this kind of stuff. And I feel like there's not a lot of honesty or there's a lot of deception that's going on. So watching this, I felt shady with these guys, and I think that was intentional because I think the direction of the movie allowed us to walk down these hallways with them, to walk and sit at these card tables with them, and it gave us an opportunity to really be a fly on the wall to see what it's like for all of these individuals who live in this world, how they interact with money, how they interact with gambling, with poker, with whatever, and 
at the end of the experience, we're asking ourselves who was right, who was wrong. And the ambiguity of that, I think, is what makes this movie really, really wonderful. Because again, as an adult, I'm looking at Mike a little bit differently than I looked at him as a high school kid or a college student. And again, that, that's informed by where I am in my life. But I think it also speaks to the maturity of a story like this, because there are layers, as you mentioned. And it's what makes movies like this so rewatchable, because it's fun to quote Teddy KGB. I think there were probably a couple of months in my college career where that was coming out of my mouth, probably every other conversation to the point where people were probably getting annoyed with me saying, watch another movie, please. And then Happy Gilmore hit. And then they said, go back to Rounders. So, you know, it's it's one of those things where you you enjoy a movie for one reason at one point. But because of the way it grows on you, you enjoy it in much different ways. And that kind of leads into my initial question I wanted to talk through with you is what is it about Rounders specifically for you, Aaron, that makes it such a fan favorite even after 20 plus years uh, since it came out? Well, I think it's the dialogue. The script itself is fantastic, and that always will, I think, lengthen a movie's ability to stay with you and be rewatchable. Because if you're watching a movie, I guess it can be two things. You can rewatch a movie and really enjoy it for the dialogue, or you can rewatch a movie and you can really enjoy it for the action. There are to totally different experiences, obviously. But I think those quotes that you're talking about i love the fact that the teddy kgb quotes are mostly confined to the very ending of this movie and so you essentially have to watch through it to get to them when you know it's coming right you know that great final scene at the table with mike one-on-one -on -one squaring off where he is basically just an amazing <laughs> line delivery one after the other you know you're going to get there, but you have to watch the whole movie to get to it. And so it, it's like a journey that you are excited about like because you want to see that big finale. But really, I think the biggest reason, I think, is because it's relatable. Poker is something that anyone can play and theoretically be good at because it doesn't take any physical talent. You don't have to go to the gym. Now, like other games, other things that you want to be good at, you do have to put in work to do so, to practice, etc. But as Mike says, it's not about luck. So, but we can play it for luck and have a good time. And I guess that's what we are so used to doing when we're watching this, right? Because most of us are not playing this game the way that Mike plays this game. We're the sucker at the table, okay? That you realize, I think it's, what did he say? five minutes in or something. <laughs> what was yeah, the, if, you, if you can't spot the sucker within a half hour, you half are an the hour, sucker. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, you're the sucker. We're the sucker. So, I mean, that's just the bottom line. I think we can also relate to this because Mike is a real dude with a girlfriend in college who's trying to pay his way through law school, and he's just an everyday guy. He's not a rich guy who has all of this wealth to play around with and waste. This is just a, a guy like us, conceivably, who has a love for and a passion for a game. And I think we understand that. Uh, it immediately makes me want to go play poker anytime I watch this movie, of course. And I mean, I think that that's what great movies about subjects like this do. It reminds me of the stories that I have from poker games in the past. I used to play, I had a several year long period where I would play regularly, like once every couple weeks or at least once a month with some friends in the Navy and husbands and wives. Um, we would get together. We would, you know, do our $20 buy-in. We would always do it on UFC fight nights. So we would get together, we would watch UFC, and then we would, we would drink a lot. So there was always going to be some banter and occasionally a UFC in the living room <laughs> going off as well over the poker game. But that seemed they're here nor there. We would do a $20 buy-in and we would play some poker and we would have like a $20 rebuy. So at best, it would cost you 40 bucks for a night of entertainment. And maybe, you know, maybe you chip in for alcohol and drinks. So 60 bucks at once a month or something. And the thing was, I approached it like I did slots. When I go play slots at a casino, 
I do so with a set amount of money. I go in with a $20 bill or $40 or whatever I'm going to spend. And I'm like, this is what I'm paying to have entertainment tonight. This is my version of buying a movie ticket. And I'm going to go in there and I'm going to have a lot of fun. And whether I come out or not with any money or not, I accept that I spent that money as if I was spending it on a video game to have an entertaining experience. And so that's how I approach poker. It's a lot more fun that way because you're not worried about the winner, the loss. And so I think it reminds us of those experiences that we had. Um, I think it also watching this movie gives us a false sense of hope to some extent because we see Mike and we want to be like, you know, I could be that guy. You know, he's he's smart, but the whole movie He's narrating it. I think that's part of what makes this movie so brilliant is it draws you into the experience because of Mike's narration. You get in his head and he tells you what to look for. He explains how to spot a tell, how to play the game, how to actually manipulate other players at the table. And it makes you have this false sense of security when you're watching it like, oh, I'll just follow Mike's advice. I'll go sit down at a table and I'll be a poker pro. I got news for you, folks. (laughs) Don't bet the house, okay, because that's not usually how it goes. But it's a great movie because it makes us feel that compelled to do something like that. Yeah, there's a sense of accessibility that we get with Mike's voiceover. And I'm not a huge voiceover guy. I mean, I I like it when it's used effectively. Rounders uses it effectively because Mike is our, not just our narrator, he's our guide. He will walk us through from the very beginning, that opening monologue that is so brilliantly written. It's as if he's saying, come on in. I want to show you my world. I'm not trying to teach you to be a better card player. I'm just telling you what I've learned. That's what a, that's what a card player does. That's what a coach does. He gives you that experience. And that's what Mike is getting from these, I would say, three to four characters in his world between Worm, Kanish, Joe, and the judge, he's getting advice. He's getting wisdom on how to live life, how to live this life where poker is a fixture in that. Either it's considered bad, don't do it, use it to your advantage, embrace it, whatever. And I think that that's what he's doing with us. He knows that we aren't a professional poker playing audience. We are lay people. And he being the director, being the screenwriter, not necessarily Mike McDermott, but Mike plays the character of that guide for us. And you're right. There is a false sense of hope that once you leave the theater, you're going to be able to go out and say, I'm going to take my friends down because I know how to read this or I know how to play the river and, you know, all these different terminologies that I think make us feel a little bit smarter after we've left the movie experience. I got a similar feeling watching Molly's Game, which is why I enjoyed the screenwriting of that. I, again, it's Aaron Sorkin, so rarely does he write anything that's bad. But he does a similar thing in his screenplay where you get explanations, but from a different perspective. She's not talking to us. She's... At some point, she's talking to her lawyer, but we get that information and she starts throwing out this terminology in a way that makes us feel like, oh, okay, I get, I've heard that before. I've heard what a flopping a nut straight is. What was that? Oh, okay. I'm going to Google that. And now I know. And so with each rewatch, I feel like I am Mike in some cases. I feel like I'm Worm in other cases. I feel like I'm Teddy KGB sometimes. And so a movie like this, I think what it does over the course of its history is the game doesn't change. The rules are still there. Texas Hold'em's rules are still the same 20 years later. And so the dialogue isn't antiquated. It's not like we're talking about a language that existed in the 40s or 50s or 60s that we don't talk that way anymore. This is about a game that doesn't change. And the other appeal is about that game itself. It's about the people rather than about the cards themselves. It reminds me a lot of horse racing. I love watching horse racing 
in the same, I get the same enjoyment that you get gambling or playing poker. Because what I'm doing is my enjoyment comes from watching the race itself. I'll go in with $20. I'll place probably 15 $1 bets and then I'll do a trifecta for the last race. I may lose all my money, but I don't care because I enjoy cheering on the horses and hearing about the jockeys because there's a personal touch to that. There's a human connection. There's a living connection to that as opposed to something like roulette or craps where it's really about gravity <laughs> and it's really about the centripetal force of how a ball lands on a particular square. Poker, I think, is one of those games, and particularly Texas Hold'em, where you get to see psychology played out around a table. This is the other thing that I love about this movie. I absolutely love every scene where poker is being played, particularly the montage of Mike and Worm trying to get that 15 grand. One of my favorite lines in the movie is when they're at a cigar shop playing poker and you see these two or three pretentious people talking about how amazing their cigars are and how it has an oily finish and Mike says well I have the wheel it's got uh, oily textures and it's good enough to win me the high and the low as part of this whole montage of him just taking money off of people and it shows me Aaron that he's not arrogant he's just really good and he's enjoying what he's doing and I think that says so much about his character because he loves the game. He loves playing the game. And he's a lot like you in that, yes, he'll get some money, but he's not like Kanish who's trying to get rent money every month or pay alimony. No, his ambition is something completely different. And over the course of the movie, I think it changes quite a bit, but it's still about the love of the game to me. I don't think that changes throughout the, the entire movie. Yeah, I, I'm glad you brought that up because I was going to bring that up at some point too. How I really enjoy that as well. And I think that that is part of, like you said, what gets us into this world of underground poker because it shows us all the various ways in which people do play poker and how that can be looked at from this other perspective, this kind of diehard playing poker for money, running games going from one to another, you know, you get one in a rec center, you get the judges game. That's very special. You have a girl who's pretending to be a girlfriend and bringing somebody in to play with like these frat guys. So you can take advantage of them. You get the cops game, right? And this is re like, this is very realistic because there are all different types of groups of people. My game that I was talking about at UFC night could have been one of the games. Somebody brought their buddy with them, you know, and it's Mike or Worm, and they're going to clean house with our $20 bills, which probably is not very lucrative to them. But you're right. It like definitely sucks you into that world. And I think it's really important because it starts with the true, what you would think of as underground, with the big, big stacks of money on the line, as Mike puts it, three stacks of high society, 10000 bucks each, right? This high-level, like, we're going to potentially kill you if you don't come through with the money that you put your name on kind of situation. That's intriguing to a movie goer. Like we want to see something kind of crazy and big stakes like that. But then we go down to those little stakes all over the city as he's bouncing around. And we even get a moment of getting to watch him in a casino because we all know this game for playing it in a casino as well. And it's a brilliant moment because it, you know, gives us the Johnny Chan sighting and Mike's huge thing. So I, I agree. I think that it's really both critical to the screenplay to do that, but it's super enjoyable in the way that they present it to us. Yeah. We're never going to get a chance to do that. We, as in you and I are, or most people, because we're not going to be in that world and nor do we, really want to be at the same time the movie kind of hides that it hides i guess it kind of intoxicates us a little bit with the fascination of poker and the fast-pacedness the tight way in which the game is played and the environments that are played in 
But when we really think about it, this may not be the best thing that we want to do for our lives. In fact, you know, it's okay to have a regular job, but it definitely appeals to the exciting side of us. The notion that this is something new, different happens every day. And as, as Mike says, some guys won't play no limit Texas Hold'em because they can't handle the swings. And I forget the line he says, but he uses some poker jargon that basically says, yeah, they could be up a bunch and then lose it on one big bet and they can't handle that. I am one of those people <laughs> and to a point where I couldn't handle losing $20 at once. That would kill me. Uh, but I, I think that there's something magical about this movie that allows us to both experience that intoxication of this world that they live in, but at the same time, show us a little bit, maybe not even a little bit, a lot of the reality of it too, which is not that appealing. Something else the movie does is it touts this idea that you can't deny who you are as evidenced by the judge and his conversation with Mike in the bar and talking about choosing his profession as a lawyer over being a, a Shiva, I think is what it was. A, a, a rabbi. A rabbi, sorry, yeah, joining the Shiva and it alienated his family. He talks about how his parents don't even talk to him anymore, which is devastating. You know, as an adult, I'm thinking, oh my gosh, that's, that's life altering. And so he gives up his relationship with his family, his religious history. And at the same time, he says, he's asked the question, you know, why'd you give it up? He says, I didn't see God there. And it's inferred that he found that or he found that purpose in being, being a judge, you know, going into law. How does this frame how we see Mike McDermott and his struggles as a poker player? Well, I mean, it's clearly a parallel for Mike and it's a, a very important person in his life that is in a sense supportive of what he's doing, I almost would say, I wouldn't, I don't know if I would use the word supportive. It's hard not to considering the ending and the fact that he does literally support him with $10,000, but he is supportive in the sense that he understands. He brings understanding to what Mike's life is all about. In that conversation, which was almost my connecting point, by the way, Mike had asked him at the end, he says, if you had to do it all over again, would you make the same choices? And Petrovsky says, what choice? And he says, the last thing I took away from the yeshiva is this. We can't run from who we are. Our destiny chooses us. And it's an interesting thing to think about, right? It's a fun storytelling device. No matter what world you want to put it in. It could be anything. In this one, it's poker. But it allows us to observe a character who struggles with the feeling that he's not doing the thing that he desires the most. And usually, just like in Rounders, it's going to revolve around these relationships that circle him and how those are going to be affected by his decision-making. And that's what we see here. I think there's so many ways to look at it, and that's what makes it kind of brilliant, is you mentioned when we were in high school or college we watched this movie and it was like, we wanted to be Mike McDermott. Mike McDermott was amazing. He's a hero. Like he's the man, right? He's doing what he wants to do. He's playing a game and he's doing it at the highest level. And we are rooting for him to succeed because we want that. And we have those same aspirations at that point in our lives, most normally. And then now here we are in our early forties, either married or previously married kids and all this other stuff. And we look at him and we think about the decisions maybe we've had to make in our own lives that led us to this point. And are we doing the thing that we would consider our quote unquote destiny in this case, or the choice that we had to make? Are we doing that thing that we're passionate about? What was the cost maybe of why we didn't do that? And I think that there's some truth to that because what goes down with Joe in this film is indicative of how real relationships work. You cannot be a positive, 
contributor to a partnership if you are not happy with who you are. You have to be able to accept yourself first. And then you can open yourself to being a part of somebody else and their world in that way. And, you know, I don't necessarily think that in this movie, gambling is something that has a negative effect on his relationship because I don't think it's a matter of addiction. I think so many times we think of poker addicts, people who can't stop, right? And there is definitely a feeling that Mike can't stop, but I feel, I observe him more from a place of like, he doesn't, he is driven less that he can't stop because he does stop for time periods. It's something he wants to do. It's not something he, I think is compulsive about. And where I feel that there's a difference is you brought this up in your one word takeaway, how you called it shady and sleazy because you cheated. But you were talked, sorry, you talked about how, you know, we see the opening monologue, which is brilliant, by the way, one of the best opening narration pieces of any movie, I believe. But he's taking all this money out of hidden cubby holes around the house. Now, I see this and I'm telling you, I don't feel that this is indicative of a gambling addiction because he is not doing something that is putting someone else's livelihood on the line. It's him. It's all him. Like he's not ruining her life if he throws away his college money. You know what I mean? And so I think it's very personal for him. Uh, it's not a husband who is losing the family's rent money and putting his wife and his child's lives at risk because he can't stop gambling. So I, th- I see a very thin line but I see a difference there. Um, and I think that for Mike, you know, it, it is destiny. The, the whole thing with Johnny Chan, once we get that story, it puts everything in context because you have to imagine Patrick, like what if you were obsessed with playing basketball and we find out down the road after all of these very questionable decisions that you beat Michael Jordan one-on-one and that's why you're pursuing this dream. Well, of course you're going to pursue the dream. Like you, have attained something. And I think that the whole journey is an eye opener for Mike that ultimately sets him on a path in life that I think is going to lead him to the least amount of regret, win or lose. And I think that's what's important. Joe was important to him, but if she's not important enough to be a choice that matters more than pursuing his career, and that's what I have to think about poker is as in this scenario, then I don't think that's the right relationship for you to be in. I don't think it's wrong. And that's where some people may differ. People will say, oh, you should always pick the relationship. And I strongly disagree with that because I don't think that having a spouse or the big career as a doctor or lawyer or whatever is for everyone. And if Mike is happy and is able to do this safely which it seems he will be, then what's the harm, even if we can't understand it because we won't ever be in that same position? There is a consistency with Mike that I can get behind. That consistency being one that he's not addicted, that he can stop. This was never about addiction for him. It was about focus. It was about drive. I can't deny that. And I I don't think that anybody who watches his character play out and do what he does can not defend what he does. What I think happens though, is there is collateral damage with any choice that you make. And that needs to be recognized. And that's what I recognized this time around. The judge had collateral damage. he lost his family. He lost the religion that he was intimately connected to. That was important to him. Being a lawyer was more important to him. And I think that it's important to recognize the fact that when you make choices that do connect you to other people, those choices will have some collateral damage. It shouldn't negate that choice that you make. I personally think Mike made the right choice. And what I think the movie does brilliantly is it doesn't make him out to be a bad guy by 
doing what he does because he's not choosing gambling over his girlfriend. He's choosing to pursue what he loves. And it's not Joe. And I don't think there's a point in the movie where I felt like he should have chosen Joe. I don't feel like she did anything to him. She didn't oppress him. And I think this is where, where Worm becomes very fun to watch is he is the polar opposite of Mike. He is Mike's alter ego in a sense. And there's that great line where <laughs> they go back to the apartment and he says, Oh man, Mike, she made off with your sheets. And he goes, in the poker game of life, women are the rake. <laughs> and Mike goes, what? What are you talking about? He goes, I don't know what to say. So, wh- where do you, what's saying? What's, I mean, he completely just discredits him. Because I think what we're meant to hear as an audience is, no, this was never about Joe oppressing him or making him feel like he's less than. He admitted. He made promises. The thing is, Aaron, it's a promise that probably shouldn't have been made. Because it's, and it wasn't about an addiction, it was about a drive. If I were passionate about filmmaking, like I am, and I were pursuing that, and I fell in love with my wife, I make a choice by marrying my wife and saying that other things will become second to that. Other people make another choice and they say nothing will come between me and this thing that I want, whether it's to be married, whether it's to have a fantastic career as a insert career here. And that's okay because you're not denying the completeness of who you are as a human being. So watching Mike play out nowhere in the movie is he ever connected to another girl. In fact, there's, um, Petra, who comes on to him. Clearly and, past relationship. Yes. And, and he pushes her away, says, yeah, I'll, I'll call you later. Which is crazy. I, That's real love for poker right there. <laughs> when you tell Famke Jansen to get out of your house after she kisses you, that's, that's an, that's an insane love for poker. I don't, I don't know what's wrong with you. <laughs> he loves the game, man. He loves the game. <laughs> but I think in a kind of subtle way, what we're seeing is someone who, it's not just that he's obsessed or passionate about the game, but that it wasn't about Joe. It wasn't about their issues. And I fully believe that he cares about her. And I say that in the present tense. Um, there's that great line at the end where she goes, call me if you need a lawyer. And he goes, I will. And I will. <laughs> yeah, I love that too. I, you know, I, I do want to say though, after I give my strong defense of Mike, I can also see a part of this where it makes me question about whether everything he does is honorable or not. And I, I don't think it is. I just think it's not the primary relationships that are the biggest ones that he's necessarily harming. I, I say that simply, I guess, because I feel like Joe is a strong character who's going to be just fine without him. I mean, she moves on pretty quick. She's like, all right, I see this. You can't tell me the truth and I'm done. Um, and I think, but I think what I did notice is there is responsibility within chasing your destiny. And I leave this film with a sense of hope for Mike that he's going to do things differently. But over the course of this film, yes, it's shady because what he's doing in chasing his destiny and what we see as fun, Patrick, and exciting, it's, it's awesome to see him go in all of those different locations and play poker and take advantage of the sucker. Right. He, he quotes that famous poker player who said it's immoral to let a sucker keep his money. But is it? He is essentially going in and taking advantage of people the entire film. And it makes you wonder who's at fault here. Is it me and you who are playing poker for fun? And this guy comes in and takes all of our money because he's smarter than us. Is it our fault for risking it in the first place and not being able to stop it from happening? Or does the blame lie on Mike for knowingly taking advantage? Now, it certainly does when he's running a partner game, but he 
all always is being introduced and brought into these. He's never coming into them from a place of honesty. He never is coming in and saying, hi, I know how to play poker. He's always lying. He's saying, you know, he doesn't know what he's doing. And then it's always kind of a surprise to them because that's how you shark people. You don't shark people by coming in and saying, yes, I play poker all the time. And I would love to sit at your table and take your money. So there's a sense of dishonesty around it that is live is in that gray area because you can't completely fault him because people are throwing their money out there. But you also understand when he gets in situations that he's cheating or the, the cheating especially, but that's more worm. But specifically just him taking advantage of these people doesn't always sit well. There is a fantastic set of layers of honor that live in this movie. And what I think the film does is it helps set up a world of exclusivity among really good poker players that common folk like us are not allowed to be a part of. And if we try to get in, we will get torn to pieces. There's that great scene in, I think it's Atlantic City. And Mike sits down and he says, well, look at that. It's the Chesterfield South. And you have this clearly group of people that have played cards before. They know how great each other are, is, each other, each person is. One of the guys says, if we were going to take each other's roles, we could have just stayed home. And then the film takes a beat and these two, quote, fish sit down and everybody starts smiling. And as an audience, we're like, yeah, they're going to take that money down. In fact, or take those guys down. And I think Mike says in a voiceover, he says, it wasn't like we were playing against each other. You know, it's like piranhas. They don't, they don't attack each other when I, I forget the saying, I'm, I'm brutalizing it. But the truth is, Aaron, there's a world of poker. The world series of poker, I think is a great example of this where Folks are known to be really good and they sit with the best and we are not allowed to be in that circle because we're not, we're not good enough. Now, whether that's meant to be an insult or not, I think there's just truth to it. The fact is you're right. The only time that Mike sits down as Mike is in that scene. Every other time he's introduced to somebody's boyfriend or He's told, hey, I talked to so-and-so up in Binghamton. He said I could get a game here. And in some ways, he's just as liable as Worm. The thing about it is that even within that circle, Worm is considered the outcast because he plays the angles. Because he actually cheats. Like, he he deals off the, the bottom of the deck. He, I don't know what the terminology is, but he is clearly a cheat. And when you look at both their relationships, the initial walkthrough of this movie, you're like, yeah, Mike's clearly the more honorable guy. But really, is he? Mm, I don't know. Now, the fact is, we are getting a glimpse. We are getting a, what, a week, two weeks, three weeks of his life? <laughs> I guess if you include the initial losing the the $30,000 uh, with with KGB. So we get probably 10 months, a year of his life. But the fact is, I don't know of any other time that we've seen him legitimately playing as Mike McDermott, really good poker player, unless he's around other good poker players. And even that they are not necessarily playing against each other. They're attacking the innocent fish that are sitting down and wanting to have a good time. What I what I think is great, Aaron, is that he justifies it. He says, look, these guys are coming down for a convention. They thought, hey, let me give poker a try. There's no problem in taking money off of them. Um, but like for somebody like Kanish, it's a job. And when it comes to playing poker, if the end goal is to get money so that you can pay your kids uh child support or alimony or whatever it is to him. That's a noble thing. And I think that's where we get the interesting thing is that every person that we get an extended conversation with has their own kind of moral compass 
on why they do what they do. Right. Everybody has a different reason for playing the game. And I think that that's what makes it difficult is because in a place like the casino, that's where that gray area exists. Everyone is not approaching that game from the same baseline because those guys are there approaching the game as if it is more of a luck based game and want to feel a little bit smart, but they're not expecting to go up against someone who has studied it and played it and does it for a living and does it and takes it so seriously that they're just there for a weekend to have fun. And so it's a, it's a problem because you need people to play against people that are like them, right? For it to be fair and for, for us to feel good, I think about the characters and their decision-making. If you're in the world series of poker, there's no question about honesty. You're playing against people who are doing the same thing as you. It is now competition, legitimate competition, just like against Teddy KJB, it was legitimate competition. It is a challenge. Otherwise, you know, be like the cops. The cops game is just some dudes who all are on the same level playing for fun. Joe takes everybody's money one week. Bob takes it the next week. John gets it the third week, you know, and it just the money kind of passes itself around. At least that's how it was in my games. Not one person always dominating because we all had that same perspective and approach to the game. And that's where we get the issues with Mike's what he's doing is not necessarily moral at all the way he's approaching it. His end goals are, I think, um, and, I, and I like I said, I, I take solace in knowing that I think he walks away a better man from this experience and he's going to do things differently. Whereas Worm, who obviously is, you know, the critical piece of the film other than Mike, is just a scoundrel. Dude, like you said, he's a cheat. I mean, this goes back to him getting Mike on board initially to throw the game in high school, right? Well, they didn't throw the game, but they had the team shave points so that they could win some bets. For Worm, it's never been about playing poker. Poker just happens to be something he's good enough at that he can exploit it to use for selfish gain and monetary drive essentially like able to get by in life because of it but it is definitely not something he comes to because he has a passion for and respect for the game because he will cheat he will do anything and everything in order to exploit that system to get what he wants and so and he never really changes like that's another thing about this is a lot of times we have a quote-unquote villain in the film and our hero will change that person through their actions. They will help that person see a better way of doing things. I was actually kind of shocked, Patrick, because when Worm departs this film, it's like he's just gone. Like all of a sudden he just, he draw. not all of a sudden, like Mike says goodbye, but like that's it. He's poof. When Mike says, I'm done with you. And he clearly has made that decision. He says, give me the keys. And he gets in the car and he leaves and Worm, he never sees Worm again. He's gone from the film completely. Um, and that's sad because I think we have to accept the fact that worm is not going to change. And worm is on a path of destruction because worm is using the game in a very dangerous way. There's a interesting dichotomy between Mike and worm, which is intentional. As I mentioned before, I think worm represents the antithesis of who Mike is. And I had a question in my head about why does Mike continuously vouch for Worm? I don't believe it's because Worm took a fall for him in high school. I mean, there has to be more history with that. I mean, yes, you owe your friend, but at some point, expulsion, you can kind of get even. You're not looking for a lifelong, I'm in debt to you for the rest of my life kind of mentality. Because... I, I didn't, I may have missed something. Worm but. went to prison and didn't rat Mike out. Mike ended up avoiding prison and Worm I, went to prison. That's why I okay. feel like he, I mean, that's what makes it so strong of a relationship of a challenge. Like you're yeah. saying about how, how long are you going to clearly allow this toxic person to stay in your life because of a sense of duty of owing this person? Yeah. I, I get it. It's because Mike, 
like Worm even kind of alludes to that at one point. He's like, you know, I, I've been in here doing this thing. You've been out doing this thing. The least you can do for me is this. To me, it's because he, Mike, Mike says it when he's talking about the story. He says he didn't tell on anybody. He just took it. And so I believe that Mike would have gone down too and been in prison if it wasn't for Worm. But Mike got to instead live his life, go to law school and be on this other trajectory. Yeah. Even though in reality, he was just as guilty as Worm. Yeah. It's interesting to see how this plays out because there's the scene in the gym where a lot of it all comes out. And you would expect that to be the moment where Mike just walks away. You know, he says, you're running from your, you, you were running from your troubles then and you're running from your troubles now. You know, I think I'm getting you out of hock and now I'm seven grand in. Um, I, I think when you see that relationship evolve at some point, I, the breaking point obviously is when Mike asks the question, what's your ambition, worm? You know, what are you doing this for? He says, I don't think like you, Mike. That to me was almost my connecting point because I think that's the most honest conversation that both of them have had since I guess that pact was created. And I think at that point, Mike said, I'm tired of feeling guilty for you making the choice to go to prison for me because that was your choice. And I think the boldest thing that Mike could do is say, I'm going to own up to this. And it was not about winning the game straight up versus finding the angles. It was about the fact that I have chosen to take this opportunity that I've been given. And while I appreciate you keeping me out of prison, the fact is I've made better choices. I've made choices that have allowed me to have good relationships, although one of those relationships is now gone with, with Joe. But I, I feel like it's interesting. I think Worm going to prison for him and them having this kind of weird relationship allowed Mike to realize, you know what? I don't need to be attached to someone. I don't need to feel beholden to this person because they did one thing for me. Yes, it changed my life, but the choices I made after that were choices that I made. They weren't influenced by him. I, really like the friendship and I like the loyalty that Mike shows to worm, whatever the motive is. I think that any other person would, after finding out that they're in the whole $7,000 would say, no, we're done. You're on your own. And I mean, he does that, but the fact is he continuously goes back and goes back. And eventually he goes on that run of, $7,500 and it leads to the one of the I think the most incredible moments in the movie which is like Mike up what $12,000 or I forget what the number is he and has then, the 10k that he has to pay Petrovsky he has enough to he has enough to do it all no like, this is yeah this is yeah this is yeah this is in the the Binghamton poker night. oh okay and it's that moment where he's got that grit again the voiceover works perfectly here he says I'm up you know, I'm up $12,000 and sun, you know, morning couldn't get here soon enough. And then you see in the back this blurry shadow and it's worm. Yep. And you're watching Mike's face. The focus is clearly on his face and it doesn't change, but you know he is absolutely like, what is happening? He's living. Yeah. He knows it's done. And, <laughs> He's and every time, every time I watch this, Aaron, I'm like, just get up, walk away, just walk away. You, you've got $12,000. Just walk away. You yeah. can go talk to grandma. I mean, but it, it frustrates me. And it tells me that, like you said, Worm will never change because he is always trying to be in control. He always thinks he can find the angle, even if it means getting beat up to death, even if it means losing a ton of money. And if he can have somebody to leech off of, even better. And so for me, when I look at that, that moment where he tosses Mike the keys and we don't see him again, it was pretty impactful because you're right. We never see Worm again, but we don't realize until after the fact, until Mike says, 
Well, Worm, I'd say we're even. I'd say we're square. That tells me that he's made his peace and that he will probably, even if he sees Worm again, he's not going to, their relationship would be different. And I'm glad we don't see Arounders too. I'm glad we don't see life after this because the end of the movie tells us that Mike is pursuing his passion. Not that he wins the World Series, but that he's pursuing his passion. He's going to Vegas. I like that ending, Aaron, because it reinforces this message that it's not about winning something. It's not about being the best. It's about saying that you had the ability, the opportunity, and the the motive to at least try. And I think that's where we can really celebrate Mike even with all of his flaws, obvious and not so obvious, we can celebrate the fact that he's back to square one. He's now doing what he wants to do, what he needs to do, what he is just driven by. And we don't get to see the result. He may go to Vegas and lose all of his money, but I think he's going to go there. Even if he loses it all, he's going to know that he did it by playing the best and by getting beaten by the best. Or he could win the whole thing. But the ambiguity, I think, is what makes the ending of the movie so great. Oh, definitely. Definitely agree. Well, if you don't have anything else, I thought we might drop into our connecting points. And uh, do you want to get us started? You want me to? Yeah, I will be happy to go first. Like I said, the conversation with the judge was really close for me. But one line of dialogue kind of summed up really what I got out of the movie the most this time. And I couldn't pass that up. And it's about the middle point of the film where Mike is arguing with Joe. It's a really brief scene, but she's telling him why what he's doing is ruining his chances at law school and his ability to become a lawyer and, and their relationship and all these other things. And he kind of turns to her and defiantly says, why do you still think it's gambling? And that line hits me, Patrick, because... I'm Joe in so many ways when I'm watching this movie for the first time, at least watching this movie as an adult with discerning attention as opposed to as a kid who's like, yeah, let's go to Teddy KGB right now with my penny jar. I'll take him out and eat all his Oreos in his face. Anyway, she he tells her that it's not luck. And this is the first time he really kind of starts to explain this to us. And he, he will go on to hammer this home throughout the film that I really enjoy this because I sometimes believe it's about luck too. When I want to play the game, it's, I feel it's about luck because I'm not that good and I don't play it on the same way in the same way that Mike does. And he is telling her how the same five guys make it to the world series of poker every year, that that's not luck. And then he says something that we've all said, at least some variation of to a loved one and immediately regretted. He says the first time that I felt alive since losing to Keddy KGB was when he was at this table recently. And, and of course Joe appropriately responds, how is that supposed to make me feel? And I think it's the first time that I really get the sense that this is not a relationship story about Mike and Joe and this thing that comes between them, because that's a different movie. This is about Mike and poker and Joe is the thing that comes between them. It's very different. And I, I special because of that. I like that. And it's also the first time that Mike, like I said, is really trying to convince us, the audience and maybe himself and his girl that poker isn't gambling. I think he's trying to explain to us in the script, the beauty of the game because it has this reputation of being shady, sleazy, underground, kind of not on the up and up, dangerous, addictive, all these things. And uh, and yet the purity of the game is explored throughout this movie. And this is really where it starts to make sure that we are seeing that even while this character is going through the dirty side of the game. So that when he comes out on the other side, that we're with him and we are in his corner and believing that, yes, there is an honor to the way that Mike is approaching poker. And I think it also puts us in Joe's shoes because she's right as well. Like, if you're going to be committed to someone, 
and they aren't the thing that makes you feel alive, and worse, you can't share that with them honestly and have them understand that and at the very least accept that about you, then it's not a great match. And I really appreciate it makes the movie so unique for me because Joe says, no, you know what? I'm a strong person and I don't need this and I'm not going to have ill will towards you. I'm not going to try and ruin your life and tell you you can't do this thing or you need to change who you are. I understand now and I also know that this means that we're not a good match because we have different goals in life for what we want to achieve and the life that we want to have. And so we're just going to have to go different different ways. And so this conversation really is the crux of all of that stuff taking place. And without it, I just think the movie is so different. It's just a really critical piece that I picked up on this time around and, and thought, man, I, I get the point of everything that's happening here. And it all makes it work so much better for me. It's fantastic duality between seeing both him and her and really agreeing with both of them and seeing it from both their perspectives, either as a, as an audience for him or an audience for her. My connecting point was in some ways similar. And it's with this conversation with Kanish at the, at the bat, the Turkish bathhouse, which let me just say this. There's a lot of stuff that goes on when the sun goes down in New York City. Apparently you can cash a $10,000 check at two in the morning. Um, and apparently you can go to a Turkish bathhouse late at night and, you know, go to a sauna and whatnot. I just, I think there's some magic about the, the city that never sleeps that this movie really gives us kind of that insight to. But this is probably one of my favorite scenes in the movie. And it's because of this conversation that Mike has with, uh, with Kanish. And I think John Turturro is fantastic in this. He's, he's a great actor. I think that there's so much about him that, um, that I really, really enjoy. And this was my first kind of entry into his acting chops. And he's fantastic in this, but Mike is talking to him and needing to get money. He's trying to get money to eventually, I don't know if he's trying to get the entire 15 K or if he's just needing something to get him into a game so that he can, uh, make a run at trying to get this money paid off. And, and Kanish basically says, I can give you, you know, 500, maybe a thousand, but I'm, I can't give you all that money. And they get into an argument. And it's funny because Mike actually quotes worm. And he says, you see all the angles, but you don't have the stones to play them. And Kanish goes, you arrogant punk. I don't have pipe dreams of going to the world series. I play for rent money. I pay because my kids have to eat. I owe alimony. I owe child support. And what I love about their relationship, Aaron, is that he always gives him an out, but not enough of an out that's going to be detrimental to him. Like he sees at the beginning of the movie and in this moment, he sees you need a place to stay. No problem. You need the truck. I gotcha. But this I cannot do. And then Mike goes into telling that story about his interaction with Chan and actually beating him. And uh, even in that, in that, that flashback, <laughs> there's a great line where Chan says, did you have it? <laughs> the way that Mike says, he goes, I, I don't remember John. <laughs> the way he says it is so pretentious, but you see Kanish kind of respond to it and says, wow, you, you sat with him and you won. But at the same time, Kanish doesn't necessarily see that as a convincing thing to give him money. And what makes that scene great for me, Aaron, is that just like with Joe and Mike, we see principle played out from two different places because Kanish is never going to be the guy that goes to the World Series. But he's going to respect Mike enough to say, I see what you need. And even though I can't give it to you, I'm not going to tell you it's wrong. After hearing that story, he said, wow, you sat with him and you beat him. But there's a level of loyalty that Kanish has where he says, I see that, but I'm not willing to take a chance on, on that. This is something that I can't do for you, but I don't think it's negating the fact that I care about you. 
here's what I can do for you. And Mike leaves and he says, okay. I don't know what their relationship is after that. I'd like to believe that they kind of leave with this mutual respect and that maybe later Mike comes back and says, you know, Kanish, you were right. I see where you were coming from. I needed to do what I needed to do. And it turned out all right for Mike. But I like the fact that Kanish doesn't really back down, just like Joe doesn't back down on these principles that say, this is who I am. And just like I can't change who you are, it can't allow you to change who I am. And that's why I can't let you, I can't give this to you because if I give you a thousand, I give you 2000, what's it going to do? It's not going to get you very far. So I'm not helping you at all. And I believe Kanish. I believe that if he did that, he'd just be enabling Mike. What we don't see is that Mike is not doing that. But I think Kanish is a seasoned guy who has seen this world and he understands, especially with his relationship with Worm, what a just a terrible path that could go down. And so I, I could see the cynicism in Kanish, but I can also see some of the sincerity in that too. Yeah, I think that that moment in that relationship is what gives the context to Mike and how he allows Worm to do that by enabling him constantly so much more value because you see the different way that the relationship can go. You see what Mike should have done much earlier on in this story than he did. He should have been the Kanish who said, no, I'm sorry, I can't go that far. I can't do this with you. And instead, he kept himself tied to that. And sometimes you just got to cut yourself free from that toxic relationship in order to save yourself first. You can't go down with somebody. And you're right. This is a great example of how to do that with grace and with love and with blunt honesty all at the same time. It's a great scene. Well, that'll do it for this episode of Feelin' Film. Uh, the next two weeks are going to be keeping us on our toes as we discuss the Blake Lively crime thriller, The Rhythm Section, followed by Aaron's annual birthday pick. And this year he is picking Whiplash, so more rhythm to go with The Rhythm Section, although of a different nature. <laughs> We've also got the winner of uh, this month's uh, patron donor pick that we mentioned earlier, um, with The Matrix being edged out by Minority Report, and we're really excited to talk about that. Aaron, thanks for another great conversation, my friend, and we'll talk soon. Hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening. If you enjoy the show, we'd love to hear from you. You can leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you're listening. These help increase visibility for the show and grow our community of listeners like you. We also invite you to connect with us further by joining our ever-growing Facebook discussion group, a link to that is in the show notes, or you can just search on Facebook and find us that way. If you'd like to continue the conversation with me, you can follow the show on Twitter, at FeelinFilm, or connect with me in the Facebook group. I'm very active in both places and would love to chat. And if you want to connect with me, you can find me at Shoeless Patch on both Facebook and Twitter. Be sure to tag me in any comments so that I'll be notified and not miss you. Once again, thank you for listening. We'll be back soon. Until then, stay positive and keep feeling film.